I'm pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so last time I started talking about the design of uh, Worldwake. And this time I will continue. I, I, uh, I started talking cards. I got up to sea. Uh, so that means I have plenty left to talk about. So last I left, we were in the seas. So I want to talk about Comet Storm. So Comet Storm uh, was X red red. It was an instant, and it did X damage to target, uh, I think, creature or player. But for a multi-kicker of one, you could add another target. So way back in Alpha, Richard made a card called Fireball. Uh, and Fireball was a somewhat complicated card where you could either do damage and or split it. Um, and it was a little complicated in how you would do that. Comet Storm is trying to be the modern-day uh, um, Fireball. And probably following in the footsteps of Fireball, it too it got very confusing in its templating. Um, yeah, Fireball is classic for the number of times we've tried to rewrite that. We've tried it with X and Y. We've done all sorts of stuff. So it shouldn't be a big surprise that Comet Storm was so problematic. Uh, in fact, I think if you ask uh, the templating people... Um, so what happens every set is... Um, Near the end of development, or in the middle of development, uh, a representative from development, usually the lead developer, uh, sits down with the lead editor of the set, uh, and usually Del, if Del is not, Del Lago, who is the, the Magic's head editor, if she's not on the set, she usually is involved in templating. Uh, and then um, also uh, Matt Tabak, who, if he's, he's not the lead editor of the set, is usually involved because he's the rules manager. Uh, and they basically sort of figure out how to word things. Um, usually, probably, if you had a pick, there's usually one or two cards in every set that, like, eat up the lion's share, or, you know, a much larger percentage of time than the other cards. And Comet Storm might have been the card for this set. I know the Comet Storm had lots of issues. Um, X spells are already tricky. Targeting's tricky. Uh, and if I remember correctly, this card took some time. Now, I've, I've made it my, my goal in life to not be good at either templating or collating, because when you're good at either of those two things, they make you do them. Uh, and that's just hours of my life I'm trying to save. So um, I was not in these meetings, but from what I understand, that Comet Storm was problematic to template. They did it. Um, uh, I mean, Comet Storm is a lot of fun in that when you do multi-kicker, it's one of the things that, like, we were talking about what can you do with multi-kicker. Oh, extra targets seems like a cool idea. Um, yeah, and one of the things that came up recently since... Uh, uh, is Strive is a mechanic in Journey to Nyx. And a lot of people are like, isn't Strive just multi-kicker? And the answer is, uh, yeah, Strive is a subset of multi-kicker, much like most things are a subset of kicker. Um, any repeatable thing that you can do more than once is a subset of multi-kicker. The problem with kicker and multi-kicker, which is we're careful when we use them, is they encompass so much more. Like The idea that any mechanic that spends extra mana to do something is just kicker Eh, kicker's a little too broad for that to mean every other mechanic just is the same thing. Because there's lots of subtlety in how that's used. So, anyway, that's my... So the question is, if that's true, why do we use kicker and multi-kicker in uh, Journey... Uh, into Zendikar block? Uh, and the answer was, uh, we were trying to bring back something people were fond of. We needed the extra mana. We decided that like, if we're going to bring back kicker, this was the right place to do it. Um, probably if kicker never got invented in the first place, I would not have put it in the set. Uh, but the fact that it already existed, a lot of the damage had been done, uh, and it filled the role really nicely, and people liked it, so I brought it back. But forever, the curse of Kicker is forever. People will always be comparing most mechanics to go, hey, isn't that Kicker? Next, Dragon Master Outcaster. 
So this was a, uh, for one red mana, it was a 1-1 one, one human shaman. And for upkeep, if you had six or more lands, you got a 5-5 five, five dragon token. Dun-dun-dun! Um, so this and, uh, what was the name of it? There's a green creature in Zendikar that I talked about where it was a 1-1 one, one creature, and if you had enough lands, it got five plus some plus some counters every turn. Um, both these cards were originally in Zendikar, and they were a little too close, but we liked them both, so we decided to push one back. Um, I forget why we pushed this one back, but we did. Uh, and it's kind of exciting. The thing that's neat about this card is it feels... It was one of those cards... So when you do design, there's a certain effect that we have where you say to somebody, once something happens, this turns on. And when the thing turns on, the player just feels like it's, it feels free. Like, at some point, I was going to six lands. I got six lands. There was no energy. A lot of costs feel like you're doing something. Like, oh, well, I have to pay a life or pay some mana or, you know, whatever. And this, this card just feels like, I'm just, I, I, I already did it. I was going to do it anyway, you know. And so, cards like this, uh, we, we definitely make use of this, uh, uh, the feeling of something that feels like I'm not even doing anything. Just, it is. Now, the reality is, it, the fact that you have to have a certain number of lands in play dictates when you can play it and when it's relevant. And, yeah, it's cheap to put out, but it doesn't matter until later. So, it, I like the card a lot. It's interesting. But it definitely is a very feel-good card because you, you the player playing it, often feel like, you know, I have six mana out, so I drop my, I drop my guy. And then, like, oh, I get dragons. Feels easy. Didn't do much of anything. Um, and it's fun to play around that space. Um, sometimes we do mechanics that are actually seem like you're investing more than you are. Uh, like Exalted, where it felt like, oh, I, I can only attack with one creature. That felt like a big cost. And the reality is, the payoff is pretty good. But this is the reverse for things that don't feel like... Like, the payoff seems awesome, but the, the cost doesn't seem like much. And people undervalue the cost, which is nice, because you, you feel good about it. Okay, next. Ever-Flowing Chalice. So Ever-Flowing Chalice was an artifact that cost zero. It had multi-kicker two. And then for each time you kicked it, you got a charge counter. And then it tapped for one colorless mana for each charge counter. This was the other hard... Uh, I, I, back-to-back, the two hard-to-template uh, multi-kicker cards. So this card is interesting, and it does the following, which is it doesn't do anything if you don't multi-kick it. I think this is the only card that's true of. The other card has an effect. Um, we want to be careful how often we do stuff like this. Uh, and the reason we did it this way was it was just a much cleaner card where... If you got one free kick, like, let's say instead of costing zero, it cost two, and then you got one free one in, it just it became a lot wordier to word. The reason we did it this way was it's kind of cleaner to say, you pay for the counters, counters tell you how many, how many mana you get out of it. Um, and th- this is one of those multi-kicker cards that we might be able to pull off not in multi-kicker world, that it could be when it comes into play, spend two mana, for two mana you spend, put a counter on it. So this is one of those cards that kind of... Ex- was dressed up as multi-kicker because we were in a multi-kicker set. But it's quite possible if this was in a non-multi-kicker set that we would word it in a slightly different way, you know, not through a multi-kicker lens. Um, but this card is definitely interesting in that it sort of says, how much do you want to invest in the card? And one of the things about cards like this, this is what we call a variable card, where you, the player, I mean, X spells are variables, you, the player, determine how strong it is. Like, if you get this early on, for example, let's say I get this... Um, early on, and I pay two mana to essentially tap for one colorless. Well, you know, we, we've done a bunch of cards like that. That's, if you really need the mana, it's, it's okay. But, you know, you draw this late in the game, you could probably get three, four, five, maybe six mana, depending on how late you get. And maybe if you have other multi-kicker spells in your deck, or, you know, X spells or whatever, this allows you to really reach. And so, 
anyway, I think this is a fun card. Um, it, it's a little on the confusing side, admittedly. Um, one of the things in general we've discovered is, and, and uh, Suspend was like the ultimate version of this, which is whenever you have to manipulate counters, whenever you're using the external thing to mark something, um, the act of explaining to people how to do that gets complicated. You know, whenever it's not... Like, if it's just it comes into play with a certain number of counters, that's not too bad. But when it's like, it's a variable, and you, depending on something to pick the variable, and that impacts things, that tends to get a little more complicated. doesn't mean we don't do them. Obviously, we did it here, we do them. But it, it definitely is something that creates a little extra confusion. Next, Eye of Ugin. So Eye of Ugin is a legendary land. Uh, it says, colorless Eldrazi spells cost two less. And for seven and tap... Search your library for a, col- a colorless creature and put it into your hand. Okay, so this card, this card was a very interesting card. Okay, so to understand this card, let's talk a little bit about the story. Okay, so what we learned is long ago in Zendikar, uh, so the Eldrazi are creatures of the Blind Eternities, which is a space kind of in between all the, all the, the planes of the multiverse that for a planeswalker to go from plane to plane has to pass through the blind eternities. Um, and what we know of the Eldrazi is they are ancient, ancient creatures that somehow we think come from the blind eternities. Anyway, um, so the, many, many years ago, thousands of years, I believe, a long time ago, um, the Eldrazi show up on Zendikar. And... Uh, I, 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 I'm not the, the story expert here, but I, I believe what happens is there are three people, three planeswalkers, manage to trap the planeswalkers, uh, not planeswalkers, manage to trap the Eldrazi on Zendikar. Uh, and the, uh, so the three planeswalkers were Sorin, Ugin, and a planeswalker we've always, we've all, never referred to anything other than the Lithomancer. Um, but the three of them managed to trap um, the Eldrazi on this world. Uh, and they did it uh, at a place called the Eye of Ugin, Ugin being one of the three. So it turns out that in order to release the uh, Eldrazi, that you have to get three planeswalkers to the Eye of Ugin. So this becomes a very important story point. Uh, and uh, Nicole Bolas, behind the scenes, manages to get Chandra and Jace and Sarkin Vol all to, to, uh, to Zendikar. And the three of them will, of course, come to the Eye of Ugin together, and, uh, spoiler alert, uh, next set calls Rise of the Eldrazi. Um, anyway, we knew we wanted to play this up, um, and so we needed, we decided what we wanted to do was a hint at what was coming. So I of Ugin is, is an interesting card. It's what I refer to as a sort of a preview card, which is, it shows up in a set in which a lot of its utility isn't, like, for example, Eldrazi spells cost two less. Or colorless, it says uh, colorless Eldrazi spells cost you less. Okay, there were no Eldrazi spells, you know. Um, they didn't exist yet. In fact, I think even because um, Eldrazi was a creature type, uh, but it didn't exist as a creature type yet. So even your even your changelings couldn't get rewarded by this yet because it didn't exist yet. Now the second ability to go get a colorless creature happened to play nicely with the Eldrazi because they were. Um, all the mo- most of the big all the big Titans stuff are colorless, but the um, but it also played Magic has lots of other colorless creatures. So we gave you a card in which the first ability was meaningless, or that hinted at something, and the second ability 
um, was useful, although once again it hinted at something. Now, we've done this before. Um, in Mirrodin, we did the Cauldra Cycle, which was the sword, the shield, and the helm of Cauldra. And the second one, which I think was the shield of Cauldra, which was in Stronghold. Um, or not Stronghold, sorry. In, uh, it's Mirrodin Black. It was in Darksteel. Um, it talks about the helm on it. Well, the helm doesn't exist yet. It's like, well, when you get all three of these out, you know, or all of them are indestructible, or whatever. Um, so from time to time, we'll do that. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, uh, Tempest did one too where they, uh, there's a spike mechanic where it did spike drone in the first set, but the, sp- the spike mechanic came later. Um, from time to time, we do this where we kind of tease at something. Now, Tempest was an example where we kind of hid it in plain sight. You didn't realize this one card was going to become a mechanic. Where, like the Shield of Cauldra, it literally mentions a card you've never seen before. Uh, and same with Ivugan. It talks about a subtype you've never seen. Eldrazi spells cost two less, or colorless Eldrazi spells cost two less. What's in Eldrazi? Now, if you go and look at the flavor text, the flavor text, I think, talks a little bit about the Eldrazi. And um, the, because they were buried so long ago, the creatures of this world, it's kind of seeped into their mythology. I believe some of them were thought that, uh, I think, uh, um, like, Ula was one of the gods, which turned out to be Ulamog. Um, and so, anyway, it's, it's definitely, you could see if you, if you sort of looked at Zendikar, there's this hint that something was going on. And we thought it'd be really, really awesome to have a little teaser. Now, we did something else with this land that we don't do normally. Uh, actually, we did a couple of things. Um, one is, um, I don't know if this taps for mana, which is a big no-no for land. Um, normally, one of our rules is land tap for mana. Um, the second thing is that we pretty much at the time, and we, we've since changed the legendary rules, so this is no longer true, but at the time, we had stopped doing legendary lands. But we're like, okay, this is such a special thing, um, and we, we didn't really think this was going to be a top-end tier tournament card. Um, I mean, it had possibilities. It had fringe, maybe. But, uh, but we wanted, like, this... If ever there was a legendary land, like, you know, this was a story point. We were putting this on to have a neon light to sort of give a hint of what was coming in the next set. Um, I remember, by the way, um, the other thing about the Eldrazi is, the next set, the name was known. When people bought Worldwake, they knew the third set was called Rise of the Eldrazi. So when you see Eye of Ugin and it affects Eldrazi spells, and the next set's called Rise of the Eldrazi, and the flavor text talks about the Eldrazi, you know, you kind of go, hmm, something's going on here. Uh, and people, this card, by the way, people were very excited about this card. Um, one of the things you worry about is when you make a card that kind of its full function isn't there yet, didn't matter, people were excited, it said Eldrazi on it, next it's called Rise of Eldrazi, and they were very excited by it. Um, and like I said, it, it, it definitely was a fun card. Okay, next. Harabaz Druid. One in a green for a 0-1 human druid ally. Tap at an X of one color where X equal the allies you control. Okay, so, I, I talked um, during the Zendikar podcast, or at least the Card by Card podcast, talking about how we had different types of allies. Um, and there were three different types. We called the Fighters, the Wizards, and the Clerics. Real quickly to recap, the Fighters were ones that every time you played an ally, whether this ally or any other ally entered the battlefield that you controlled, uh, all, this ally got a plus one, plus one counter on it. The second one, when it entered the battlefield, it said, when I enter the battlefield, I generate an effect... The effect is equal to the number of um, allies I have. Number three were the clerics. The clerics came into play, and they granted an ability to all allies you controlled. 
So all, all three of these were scalable, um, which uh, the fighters got, were as big as you, allies that had entered while it was there. The wizard effects scaled, their effects scaled on the allies, and the cleric scaled in that how many things they affected were scaled. Um, so one of the things we started doing in World Wake, uh, I don't think we did this in Zen card, maybe we did it on one or two cards, is we started doing some scaling effects that were not the traditional ally mechanic, but cared about allies. So a Herobaz Druid, for example, is a mana producer, and it gets more mana the more allies you have, but it's not... it. Well, well it, it is an ally, so when it enters the battlefield, it does trigger the stuff. It is, it is now working a slightly different way, where it is doing something that is caring about number, and it's an activated ability. It's not, it's not a trigger ability like, like the stuff in Zendikar. Um, and we did a bunch more of this. Um, kind of what we wanted to do is we wanted you to have an ally deck, so we gave you some of the stuff in the first set and some of the stuff in the second set. Um, we did not have allies in Rise of the Eldrazi. I'll talk about that when we do Rise of the Eldrazi. One of the big complaints, um, probably a big mistake on our part. But um, we, were, we had two sets to get the allies out, so we, were, we, we divvied them up and put them between the two sets. Um, and this card definitely was one of the things that we liked because it allowed you... One of the things about the allies is we spread them through all five colors, and so in order to play an ally deck, you needed the ability to have lots of colors, and that this card both rewarded you for having allies and enabled you to play more allies. So it, it fills a very vital role for, for the ally deck. Okay, next. Jace the Mind Sculptor. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 Okay. If you do not know Jace the Mind Sculptor, maybe you've heard of Jace the Mind Sculptor, he costs two blue and blue. He began with a loyalty of three, and he adds four, you heard me, four abilities. For plus two loyalty, you look to the top card of Target Player's Library, and you put it back on top or bottom. For zero, you could um, draw three cards and put two cards from your hand on top. For minus one loyalty, you can return target creature to its owner's hand. You can unsummon it. Or for minus 12 loyalty, you could exile a library, uh, and the, uh, exile target library, and that player's hand is shuffled into the library. You should do that in your opponent. Um, so, this card, uh, in R&D we have a, a terminology uh, that we use for cards like this. It is what we call Barokin. Uh, so what happened was, when we first made the Planeswalkers, when we were created, in fact, when we were figuring out what they looked like and we were making the frames for them, I requested a four-loyalty frame because I said there will come a day in which we will do a four-loyalty Planeswalker. Um, this was the day. Oh, people have asked me, by the way, will we ever see another four-loyalty Planeswalker? Now the, um, the Jace became such this crazy over, you know, this uh, Baroque card. Uh, and the answer is, I think we will. I don't definitively know we will, but I think we will. Um, it's the kind of thing... It's the kind of thing... I just... I don't know. It, it, it's exciting. And you, you want to do exciting things. So... Uh, I, I, I believe we'll do it again. Um, I believe we'll do it carefully. And we'll be careful when and where we do it. And we'll be a little more aware. Um, but... Uh, so anyway. Um, so... We knew we wanted to do a four... A four well, we knew somewhere we wanted to do a four-loyalty Planeswalker. Uh, so in the first set that came out, Jace was the blue Planeswalker of the, of the original Lorwyn 5. He was the breakout star. Um, Garrick was probably the strongest of the Planeswalker cards, so Garrick was also very popular. But Jace, just people liked the character of Jace. I've talked about this before. I think it has to do 
with Jace is the closest to the sort of archetype of a game player. Um, blue has always been very popular as a magic color for experienced players. And anyway, Jace just hit all the right buttons, and people really like Jace. Um, so we decided, like, okay, if Jace is our man, Jace is our guy, let's make him the first four loyalty planeswalker. Um, okay, so uh, I know we went through many, many iterations. Um, the thing that, the, the, oh, so one of the things we do with the planeswalkers is we try to make sure they have a shtick. Uh, and Jace's shtick is he's, a, he's a, the mind mage, that he messes with your mind. Um, and so what we did is we said, okay, what are different kind of effects? What could he do? Well, one, he can mess with your mind. That means he could, I mean, and the idea is he could search his own mind for things or he can search with your mind, but he could search his mind and mess around. So obviously the first ability is, is kind of messing with people's minds. Second ability is searching out knowledge, which, you know, he can search knowledge in his own brain and other people's brains. He can search out knowledge. Um, the third ability is um, one of the things he can do is he can undo that um, when you summon a creature, you are creating magic to, to pull them there. And he has the ability to sever that tie, which is, uh, once again, part of the thing about mental magic is messing with the minds of the people that are casting it. Uh, and the last thing is, talk about messing with your mind, he can really mess with your mind, your brain, your deck being, your library being your um, representative of your, your deep brain. The, the idea is your hand is your sort of conscious thought, your, what's on your, your forebrain right now, and the rest of your library is the rest of your brain, your memories and everything. And JC, he can mess with that. Um, that's why Jay says a lot of milling type things that he, he messes he messes with your mind and we tend to show messing with the mind usually interacting with either the hand or the library and then blue is more off the library black is more off the hand um, anyway this card I know uh, so the lead developer of this set was Mike Turnian I know that Mike pushed this card because he, he's like come on Jace, Jace is our guy you know he should be a good planeswalker Obviously, he pushed a little more than he realized that one of the things that, that I think happened was there's a there's wiggle room for how good something is. And sometimes, you know, we're off by 10%. And this is one of the things where Mike pushed the card and then we were off by 10%, you know. It was already meant to be a card that was pushed. Um, and I know Eric Lau, who's the current head developer, is a little more cautious these days about what we push and what we don't push. Um, but this card was definitely pushed a little more than we probably would modern day. And like I said, it was pushed and we missed. So it ended up being a very strong card. This card actually ended up getting banned in multiple formats. Um, and so it, 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 he is the star of, uh, of World Wake. I, I know if someone's, you know, when, when, you were, when you're cracking a World Wake pack, you're hoping a Jace is inside. Um, but anyway, he's gone on to be a defining card in almost every format he's playable in and, and not banned in. So, uh, this is definitely one of the, the highlighting cards of the set. I know it went through a lot of iterations, most of which was during design. Usually, play, uh, Planeswalkers do a lot of iteration during design. Design will take a, a crack at it. Like, we turned over a four loyalty Planeswalker. That, that didn't change. But a lot of the individual abilities, I mean, some of them stuck, I believe, but a bunch of them changed during, during development. Next, Join the Ranks. So Join the Ranks is costs three and a white. It's an instant and you put two 1-1 ally tokens onto the battlefield. So one of the things that's very interesting is one of the spells that White gets all the time is make some tokens. Traditionally, it is usually a sorcery, and it makes two 1-1 to- two soldier tokens. Um, but the neat thing about it is how you can take the simple spell um, and just turn a few knobs. So one of the knobs you can turn on these cards is whether they're instant or sorcery. 
If you make them instant, it becomes more of a combat trick because now, in response to your opponent attacking with something, you can have some blockers. Maybe you can take a team up and take down a two toughest creature. Um, but in this set, we want one, one extra place, which is, happens in things where there's a tribal component. The nice thing is when you make a token, well, the tokens get to be something. In this particular case, they got to be allies. Now, in a set, now it, normally, by the way, notice that um, one W sorcery put two one one soldier tokens in play. Uh, raise the alarm. Um, this costs two extra mana. Okay, well, at least at least one of the mana is the instant. Maybe one and a half is the instant part of it because that makes it a much more useful spell. And like that, it becomes a combat trick on, on defense. But the ally thing was pretty substantial. Why? Because a lot of cards that have ally cared about every time an ally entered the battlefield. And this not only had an ally into the battlefield, it had two allies into the battlefield. So all of a sudden, mid-combat, remember, it's an instant, you know, your fighter could get two bigger. Your wizard gets to do two spells. Your cleric gets to buff everybody twice. Okay, that one not, not always as exciting as the first two, since unless it's a stackable fact. But there were, there were some stackable facts. Um, but, so this is definitely something like, not only do I have a combat trick, not only do I get two one ones, but I get all the good, all the goodness of it being allies. And so, um, and that's one of the things that, by the way, one of the things we love as a designer is that when you can make something that is just like, a, just like this card, we have made instant put two one ones into play. That, that's a card we've made. Um, and so this card just says, okay, just one, I'm literally, I'm just changing the word soldier to ally. That's all. Just, just one word. And that one word can make all the difference in a card where there's a tribal component. Um, so anyway, that's one of the things that I like. About this. I, as a designer, I love when you can make a card that feels like almost like just a run-of-the-mill card you'd make in every set. But, oh, by the way, in this set, it's not just a run-of-the-mill card. It has all sorts of ramifications. And this is a perfect example where, yes, this does everything Raise the Alarm does, but, oh, so, so much more. Um, you know, it... it I mean, A, it's instant, but we, we've done, we do that from time to time. But the, the alliedness of it really allowed all sorts of really fun, you know, things to happen. And by the way, even in decks in which one of the things that's cool about allies is, in Limited, for example, you don't necessarily build a full ally deck. Sometimes you just had some allies. Um, and this, this could do cool things even in a deck not dedicated to allies. Um, you know, you just have one or two allies in play. All, it's just that. This card really would pay off and do cool things. Okay, next. Calastria, Highborn. So black, black for a two-two vampire shaman. She or other vampire. If she or another vampire dies, you pay B to drain player for two life. So uh, drain life, real quickly for those that don't know what I mean. Uh, drain life was a spell in Alpha. Uh, drain effects mean that you, the player, something loses life or something either takes damage. I, I guess normally drain effects are damage. So something is damaged, and then you gain the life of the damage. Um, now, there's a couple different ways we do it. Um, one is, sometimes it's locked, where it's like, I'm going to do three damage and gain three life. Other times, and this is how it was done in Alpha, I, I do damage to something, and for each damage I do, I gain life. And the flavor there, which is, you know, I'm literally, I'm, I'm draining your life. You are going down in life, I'm going up in life. And you can drain players, you can drain creatures... Um, the reason we tend to do the locked one now more often, almost always, is the complication of caring about how much damage you do. While it's super flavorful, it just makes the card much, much wordier, much more complicated. A lot of people just get confused what's going on. And that is, 
If you just say deal three damage, you know, target creature or target player, or whatever, and gain three life, it's super simple. Everybody gets it. Um, but the drain life version of do this much damage, and then for each damage you do, you get this much life. It just is complicated, and that sometimes in design you do what's simple, and the and the flavor carries through. Yeah, yeah. Look, they're losing life, you're gaining life. Is it a one for one exact perfect match? No, but sometimes the match is close enough. The key in game design is you do not always need to match flavor 100%. That matching flavor at the sake of gameplay usually is a mistake. Depends on your game, depends where your flavor is. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions to this rule, but as a general rule, as a general rule if your flavor is close enough, it's okay to not be 100% if it makes the gameplay better. That if a drain life is better because it just states the value of it, and I do three damage to a two toughness creature, but you get, still get three life, you know what? That's okay. That that's... That the flavor of drain life is still coming through. You know, that, that those effects come through well, and that it is. I think one of the mistakes that some designers will make is to try to get something to be exact in its flavor. They will sacrifice gameplay, and in a game, flavor is really important. But flavor has to be subservient to good gameplay. That a, it's a game. You know, if, if if it was a story and you were telling a story, you know what? If a game is secondary to your story, hey, pick the right thing for the story. But in a game, if your story has to come second to your game, your flavor is secondary to the game, the gameplay has to come first. And the reality is, as long as you are close to the flavor, the people will connect the flavor. You know, and that, yeah, whenever we do something where we, we sacrifice a little bit of flavor to make better gameplay, I'll get people complain because, like, I like the flavor better. But the reality is, in the end you will get much more excitement out of good gameplay than you will out of the recognition of that one kind of flavor just matching a little tiny bit. Okay, one last thought, because I'm, I'm almost to, um, to work. Uh, Colony Garden, I think that's how it's pronounced. Uh, it's a land that enters the battlefield tapped, taps for green, and when it enters the battlefield, you get a 0-1 plant token. So, uh, of all the spell lands in this set, this one ended up being the most powerful. And the funny thing is, it doesn't sound that powerful. You're like, what do I get? A zero-one creature. Oh, thank you very much. Um, now, there's a couple reasons why this is good. One is, um, it's a creature. You can block with it. There are ways to enhance it. It, it is, in fact, a creature. Um, there are, and, and like I said, there are even some ways in the set that care about plants, that can make plants bigger. Um, we originally, our first version of this made a one-one token. And it was uh, Baroquean to use a term you've learned today. Um, it was just too good. And so we ended up changing it to a zero-one plant token. Uh, that ended up still being good. That if it did nothing but chumped a creature, just saved you some damage, that often was valuable. Um, there are other tricks you could do with it. It just, having a body, even if the body seems kind of meaning, not, not too, seems meaningless, you know, zero-one, it, there's ways to make it relevant and make it matter. And uh, this card actually ended up being m- much more powerful than people thought. Um, Anyway, so I can see work I'm uh, about to pull into the parking lot. So as you can tell, I got to K, which means I'm not done yet. So I think I have one more day. I think I can finish this up in, in one more podcast. Uh, maybe, maybe make this a, a threefer. Um, anyway, I want to thank you guys for joining me today. Um, like I said, World Wake, World Wake was a fun set in the sense that I was very, very happy with Zendikar. I was very proud what Zendikar had become. And World Wake was a chance to sort of follow up on that. And it, it was neat, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it was also fun watching Ken do his very first you know, lead. That was also a cool experience. But anyway, 
as much as I love talking about magic, even more, I like making magic. So it's time to me to go do that. I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.